Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Calling Up podcast series on addressing anti-Black racism. Today's focus is staff on staff racism, and it's my absolute pleasure to moderate today's panel discussion. My name is Devika Mathur and I'm the DDSB's Human Rights and Equity Advisor. I identify as South Asian. I'm a daughter, a sister, and a spouse. I'm also a mother to two teenagers and an auntie to several nieces and nephews. My family and I are settlers on Indigenous lands, and we are deeply grateful for all the privileges and benefits that that affords us. I am part of a diverse and multi-faith family, and I identify as heterosexual and cisgender, and my pronouns are she and her. It's important that I start the discussion with my identity so that I ground the conversation in my privileges and power, as well as the ways in which I experience discrimination. Now for our panelists, we have with us today three wonderful women, um, Allison, Arlene, and Tamika, and I'll turn it over to them to introduce themselves in whatever way they would like and feel comfortable sharing. Um, So starting with you, please, Allison. Hi, my name is Allison. I'm a vice principal within the Durham District School Board for the last six years. I identify as a South Asian, although I was uh, raised in a very eclectic uh, East African, uh, with an East African background. Um, I am a, a mother. I identify, uh, or my pronouns, sorry, are she and her. I have three uh, wonderfully biracial babies that are also growing up uh, within the Durham District School Board. And I am happy here to uh, to be here today to share my experiences uh, as an employee of the Durham District School Board. Thank you, Allison. Arlene? Good afternoon, thank you. Um, my name is Arlene. I, ha- I am a manager within the Durham District School Board at the Education Center. Um, I am a mother of, an, uh, of two boys that are in the system, are in DDSB, that I'm proud to be. Uh, I am a black woman w- with uh, background is West Indian, first generation Canadian. Um, pronouns are she and her. Thank you. Thank you, Arlene and Tamika. Hi, I'm Tamika. I'm a secondary vice principal, um, new to the role. I am a mother of three that went through the DDSB. Um, I am a black woman. My background is Jamaican and black American. My pronouns are she and her. I'm a mother and I'm also a wife. Thank you, Tamika. We're so fortunate to have representatives from administration and from the Ed Center today to give us a range of voices on this topic. A warm welcome to you and thank you for being here to share your experiences and your insights with us. I did want to set the stage for for today's discussion by grounding it in one of the main foundational concepts, and that is what we're calling duty bearer responsibilities. And so we know that the Human Rights Code protects Ontarians from discrimination in employment and in other areas, and that as employees, we all have rights under the code. We are right holders, and we have the right to a respectful working environment free from discrimination based on all of the protected grounds under the code. And as employees and as an organization, we also have responsibilities. We have a duty to uphold those rights. So our responsibilities include protecting and promoting human rights, preventing discrimination, responding to discriminatory barriers, learning about human rights so that we can better apply them in our day-to-day work, and correcting discrimination when it happens. 
So I do have um, four questions to ask our panelists about their experiences with staff on staff racism. And as we hear from them, I want us as listeners to think about those duty bear responsibilities. If we met them in these instances that are about to be shared and what we might do differently to meet them if we were in similar situations. And we started with our identities because we know that our identities shape our experiences and also help us identify what ongoing learning we might need to do to better understand the experiences of others. And it's through that self-reflection and listening to the voices and experiences of others that we can learn more about discriminatory impacts, disrupt uh, racism and other forms of, dis of oppression, and uphold our duty bear responsibilities in our workplaces. And we know that racialized and other staff experience overt individual and systemic racism along with microaggressions, those more subtle slights or snubs that are sometimes hard to put your finger on, but that have a significant impact. And the weight and the toll that this has on us when we experience this, not only in, or in our work lives, but in our communities, in our personal lives, with our families, with our friends, at the grocery store, at the park, and so on. And finally, just before we get to our questions for the panelists, we do wanna signal that staff on staff racism is a highly sensitive topic for both our panelists and for our listeners. Our panelists have graciously agreed to openly share their experiences and also to not name names. This isn't about blaming and shaming, but is about sharing real life examples and incidents that our colleagues have experienced directly here in the DDSB so that we can learn from one another and so we can do better. So we'll start with our first question. How has staff on staff anti-Black racism manifested in your work experiences at the DDSB? What have you seen or experienced? I want to say before, um, before being appointed vice principal, I, I kind of knew, um, predicted where I would be placed based upon um, my background, uh, my identity, and whose voice uh, I felt like um, I would amplify in that role. So I kind of knew where I was going, the population that I would serve before that call even came. Um, and whether or not we want to call that racism or um, a call to action uh, is debatable, but you know that there's a challenge in front of you because not only are you leading the charge in terms of education and inspiring best practice, you are also called to um, amplify voices that um, don't have ears or aren't, don't have those ears to listen um, to, to what is being uh, asked for within the community. Uh, so, you know, the challenge is going to be a tough one. Going to a school uh, where the scores are low and perhaps the community hasn't made those connections with staff, right? So the task is large. Um, and the experience, there's so many experiences I can pull from, unfortunately. Um, the one that stands out is one um, from my first year because this is a narrative that kind of carried through and I think there's lots to learn from it. Uh, was a parent to um, a family that was openly uh, racist, um, that would use slurs, that would talk about, and this is years before Floyd, so would openly talk about Black Lives Don't Matter, would say these things. Um, and the parent was called into the office because his child told another child that this was a whites-only table and the child couldn't sit here. So we're talking about the last six years, right? So 
this is not 1960 something, but that's where I felt I was working. Um, and uh, having to ask this family to um, come in and discuss this uh, was definitely a charged conversation and one that I, I wanted to see through. Um, during that meeting with this uh, father uh, and my principal partner at the time, um, the father turned to uh, my principal partner and, and declared either he, I would leave or he would leave. So we're no, we know we're dealing with a, a bigot here. Uh, we, we're not, um, I'm not going to paint this picture any differently than what it was, but it was definitely a call to action in that um, there was a choice to be made there. And this is not to shame uh, the, the colleague that I'm speaking about because we are still good friends. Uh, our, our learning and our conversation has um, grown over the years. We're still in um, conversation with one another and we still share our learning with one another. Um, but he did ask me to leave the room. So, I know in sharing this story and, and sharing it with other, uh, um, I guess, members at the time in that circle uh, that were part of this narrative, the impact of that was huge. And, and, and not just on myself and on the, the I want to say the weight, but on the belief in myself that I could do this role and be supported in this role to serve and protect and create inclusive environments. Um, but it also gave power to this family that I'm going to say terrorized students and teachers in the workplace and the environment. It empowered um, this parent to, to feel um, entitled in not just hate speech, but um, gave power to um, his, his children to carry out um, similar acts that, you know, within their own classrooms on a regular basis. Um, those children um, went on obviously to become a part of a greater narrative that, you know, if we, if we don't take the time to step in and intervene when we can, things get a lot bigger and there's a lot more damage um, caused and there's a lot more harm to repair. Um, that administrator, when I left the room, sent me a text a little while later and said, within the same day, and said, how angry are you? And I think th the response there, and I was, I was pretty humbled, because it's a pretty humbling experience um, to feel uh, asked to leave a space, to leave a room, uh, because of you know, what you stand for and who you stand for, or who you're standing in front of or in between. Um, and I, my response was, I'm, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed, because that was an opportunity for you to uh, use your privilege and to change the space and to give a message um, to that community that um, that's not the environment that we are creating within our school systems. That's not the environment that we're creating within our classrooms, you know, and within the community and within our arts. Uh, I know for me in that moment, um, it was it was sadness because I knew 
uh, a couple of things that I was going to be asked to, you know, forgive my partner. Um, and it wasn't about forgiveness and it wasn't about anger. It was about pushing the rock up the hill and wondering who was going to help me. So when I hear about um, the policies that are now in place, uh, when we start our meetings with our um, dedication to inclusive spaces, I feel like um, we're at a point where I know I'm not supposed to be alone, right? And um, the things that I'm saying are uh, echoed and the things that I'm feeling are shared experiences. The other thing about being a BIPOC administrator is you don't get the opportunity um, for the most part to work with somebody that understands these things from lived experiences. You always have to be that lens. You always have to give that perspective. You always have to speak up. And sometimes it's, well, it's exhausting. You want someone to get it, right? And that's draining on top of the everyday work. It's draining. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Arlene, how about you? Um, in what ways has staff on staff anti-Black racism manifested in your work experiences? What have you seen or experienced? Okay. And I think it's a bit different when working at the education center, not directly with the community per se uh, or parents, but you do see it with staff and just interactions. And I would say um, one of my first experiences um, was when I started with DDSB um, within my department, I was, I believe, the first person of color, racialized person within the department, and especially within my role. Um, I remember, you know, being in my office and when administrators would come, come to meet me because they haven't, you know, they haven't met or seen me yet. And just that shock coming to the door, you could see the reaction that they didn't expect me to be sitting in that chair. They didn't expect me to be there. So, and I remember my first um, big meeting with all the administrators, all the principals and, you know, getting up stage to introduce myself and seeing the eyes on me again, not you know, they're not expecting me or someone like me to be in that space. You could read, you could read that. So I had that experience very first on knowing the environment that I would be in. Um, I always said, you know, in my the industry I've been in, uh, you know, this is the first time I've been in education. But in my profession, I never felt. I felt as a professional first, and you know, and, and then a black woman second. Within the BDSB, I always feel as a black woman first, like that's the first thing that come, comes about and you feel that you wear that each day and it's, and as Allison says, it's heavy because you're always doing that work, right? Um, the other pieces where I see is just in the system of how we do things. I see the barriers in place because of the role that I have. Um, even though the board's trying to move in, in a direction, I can see, you know, even with the policies rolled out that people have good intentions, but it's interesting to watch and hear conversations that there are still so many barriers in place. Um, when I see other black professors trying to move on, there's certain comments made about them and why they want to move on, or um, they're not getting the same support as their um, white counterparts would get. And, you know, so, so I've seen it with others. I've seen, again, the, the interactions I've had, and I feel, even again, within my role, I've noticed my voice isn't as heard as, say, um, 
as a as a as a white client part. Like if I make a suggestion or see change or, or suggest something, it's not taken to the same level or um, I'm gonna say almost to the same importance. It's kind of dismissed at times. So that's been challenging. And again, it does get tiring because you want to do the work. And, and and the reason why I stay because again, it, these are positions that I could do anywhere in any industry. But I stay because I do want to make I, I do see the impact that I make within the board and within the community. So that's what keeps you here. But it's heavy work and it could be frustrating and, and tiring, quite honestly. So those are just kind of, you know, some quick examples of what I've seen, but it, it continues on as well because just the whole industry, there's not a lot of representation. And I see when I interact with other boards as well, there's not a lot of people like me in my role or similar roles like that. So it is, I would say very lonely as well, like within the board again, within my level, there's not a lot of representation. So, you know, I look at administrators, you know, even on this panel that, you know, there, there's some, you know, beautiful women here that I that I can relate to, but at, you know, but at management and that leadership level in the education that there isn't. So it gets lonely when you go to meetings and you're the only one and, um, wow. you know, many times that's, that's what it is and I don't have those connections. So that again becomes heavy and, and lonely work, but you try to continue to move on with it because you know the impact that you're doing. So I'll just kind of stop there. Can, can I add to that, Arlene? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Like, it's, it's not so much too that people aren't being friendly. It's that you don't yeah. you don't speak the same language, right? So you don't yeah. know the movie line that's going to make everybody crack up. You don't yeah. know the reference. Just like you know, I'm sure what's playing in my car when I leave here is not on a lot of other people's radios, right? But it's yeah. like you're you've, you're all you're not you're always going to somebody else's clubhouse that's kind of what it feels like right and um a brilliant superintendent that i know once told me that i was successful in an interview because i went in white um and i i kind of i had a pause that was the first time someone said it so blatantly to me and i thought about that and it's exactly what i did right like it goes beyond just straightening your hair and you know picking out a certain outfit it is slipping into a whole other being that talks and responds a different way and that's uh it has created some pathways for me i'm, I'm talking about you know the the need to code switch in order to make space for myself in certain areas um but it's it's never quite knowing everything that you need to say in order to fit in and to have that chair safe for you when you show up at a meeting but even in the casual conversations like you said it is you feel left out because you don't have that same cultural reference there in a, a there's another world that goes on and you and I know I've gone to lunches and so forth that are supposed to be social, but I cannot participate because I don't have those ex experiences that everyone, everybody kind of knows the same place or the certain cottages or certain areas and things like that. And I honestly have to sit there on the side because those aren't conversations. That's not my, that's not my life. I can't connect with it. So it does feel, that is another way to feel isolated, even though you're around people because you can't connect with that culture or those conversations. So, and then that's a way, again, to leave people out. So when they're trying to move on or want somebody for their team, they're going to get those people that, oh, they fit 
because they're able to get into those conversations that you're not, right? So again, it's that kind of way of feeling isolated, even though you're around other people, but it is something that unless I want to, you know, partake in a totally different way of living than I do and not be my true self, then, then I could be part of that. But that's not what I want to do. Matt, and thank you for naming um, code switching and really, you know, that feeling of um, never fully, never fully really feeling like you belong, no matter how hard you try, um, or never, or not being able to do that, bringing your authentic self to your work or to, um, to your workplace. Tamika, can I ask you the same question in terms of how has staff on staff anti-Black racism manifested in your work experiences at the DDSB? Very interesting question, Debika. Um, so, of course, I moved from New York City to Ajax. Um, this year will be 21 years. Um, I always ask myself, why is it taking so long for the DDSB to make some moves? And this is 21 years later, and we're just getting the moves. I guess it's better to be late than never, but it's it's been a while. Um, it, it was different. And I noticed that in 2000, the beginning of 2005, when I started supplying after teacher's college, when I started supplying and I would go to a school and they would think I'm the EA or something. And I'm like, no, I'm the teacher. So, I'm, and I would ask myself, why would they think automatically that I'm the EA or something less than a teacher? So that bothered me. And I always ask myself why. Um, this year has been quite the year. Um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she's also, she's a supply within the DDSB. She's a, a new teacher. She is a black woman. And she, I'll tell you her experience. She went to a school and she called me on my phone crying. Now, whenever I see my kids calling, I'm stopping everything and I'm answering. And she was crying and she said, mom, I want to go home. She's supplying. And I'm like, what happened? And she said, they think I'm a thief. I'm like, who think you're a thief? Administrators. My mom hat went on. My administration hat went off and I had to gather myself. Because my first instinct was, this is my this is this is my child. You're not going to do that to my child that's just coming in to the board. Uh, so I didn't lose it. I called someone, a superintendent, and I spoke to the superintendent, not knowing that that was a superintendent of that school. And I was just like, I was as crying. I was just. This is my child and she's experiencing that. And I didn't want her to just up and leave the school because then that would leave the kids not having a teacher. And I know supply teachers are already short. So I told her to just wait, let me make a call and I'll get back to her. The superintendent was good enough to go to the school and have a conversation with my daughter. Of course, when she came home, we had a conversation and I told her, you're not going back there, and that's it. You're never going back to that school. That should have never happened in the DDSB. With all the work that we're trying to do and everything that's happened over the last couple of years, 
that should just be a no-no. I am sure if it was an administrator that probably looked like me or sound like me, would it be different? How would that, how would teachers have taken that? How would the staff have taken that? How would parents have taken that behavior? And I always wonder, the playing field is not the same. And I don't know if it would ever be the same for someone that looks like me or a Caucasian. So that was one thing that happened this year. I went to the school being pretty much the only black administrator at the school. I was excited to be an administrator. I was like, oh yeah, I love the school system. I love my students. I love interacting with staff. This staff was a staff like no other because of course I don't look like them. I don't sound like them. And in this school, it was predominantly white. That picture is just, it didn't sit well with me and it still doesn't sit well. Uh, we're trying to make some changes because the student is not, the teachers are not matching the population of the students at all. Times have changed. So having a school with predominantly white and not the white that's not accepting, that's an issue within the DDSB. I don't know how to talk the talk, walk the walk, that's not me. And I'm gonna be upfront. What you see, what you hear, this is Tamika. And they see me talking to black students, they would say, she only talked to black students. Right there again. And it's so painful because I know me and I know all the kids whether they be black, white, brown, they tend to call me mom. I am the mother figure and this is what I'm going to do. So when you're only seeing or saying one thing, it hurts. It hurts and it's, it, it's very painful. I don't even know how to explain. I'm talking about it and tears are coming because I've never experienced anything like this. Because I was, I, was, I was in my office crying with the doors was closed. I collected myself and I left. I took my bag and I said, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Nobody knew. One person knew. And then he had an amazing superintendent call me. Because I was like, mm, I, I don't think I want to go back there. Because these people are just, they're just evil. So I spoke to her and I spoke to my pastor. My pastor, when I went to church, he had a whole congregation pray for me because he knows the burden, the load I was carrying. Mm -hmm. And I would come home and my kids and my husband would say, you always love what you do. Do you still love what you do? And I'm like, honestly, I'm not enjoying this position. And that shouldn't be. I've worked hard. I've worked very hard because it's not easy for someone like me to move up the ladder. So I worked very hard and did my time in the class. And now I think I was ready for the move. And that's, those are the things I was experiencing. And I knew if I was feeling this, what were my students feeling? Thank you so much. Um... Allison, Arlene, and Tamika for sharing those experiences. Um, in, in sharing your experiences, you talked a little bit about the impact. And we've heard things like the hurt, 
um, the pain, uh, the loneliness, the disappointment, exclusion, heaviness, and the burden that you've experienced. Is there anything else that you'd like to share in terms of what the impact has been? How did this impact you? Perhaps we can start with Arlene. You said a lot of like when I listened to the list of, of what we've said, because it again, it is, is very heavy of what we've had, what we continue to bear and what we start. I would say the impact for me personally, again, I think I've mentioned it before, it, it made me question staying. And to me, that's, that would be a loss. I think I, I have some skills to be able to bring to the board. But what, and what I've seen with other people, they lose people. They lose great talent because there's people that do not want to continue on being sub, you know, mm. being in this space with and having to deal with all the negative baggage and everything you just listed and they leave. So I think overall, that's the biggest impact. We lose great, and I hear it all the time, we, we lose great talent because there's people that they don't want to fight anymore. There, there's other places they can go to feel more welcome or more accepted and so forth and not have to go through the struggle. I know over my years, I've questioned it probably more times than not, should I stay? Is there somewhere else I should go? Because I, the feelings that I've had here, again, in my whole career, I've never felt as you said, as the negative feelings that I've had being at BDSB. But again, I try to focus on the overall work, the overall impact to community and kids and so forth. That's what keeps me going. But I tell you, it's a struggle to, to keep that focus. and. I would say that, and again, like as you mentioned, there is depression, there is that. Sometimes I'm so busy worrying about or having to deal with all the other stuff. It's like, sometimes I just say, I just want to do my work. I just want to do the work. That's what brings me joy. That's where I know I have the impact. But you have to deal with all the other, I feel like, noise that goes on. Dealing with, with people in the comments and, and having to navigate all the, all the time, it seems. You know, sometimes you'll see actions or, you know, white people being able to act a certain way. And you know you, there's no way you could ever say that or act in that exact same way because it would be taken differently. You would be disciplined in a minute. And so I just watch and I hear language or behavior happening from counterparts. And I'm like, wow, there's no way I would be able to get away with that. So you're always even almost poli policing your own actions because you know you'll be called out in a different way. As a teacher, I've always been positive. Always, when you ask me what I do, I'm proud to say I'm a teacher. In the last few months, anybody asks me about your job, I have 50 negative things to say. And, and, and that's an issue with me. It's like the joy has gone, but then I had to retract and say, you know what, I'm stronger than that. And these people are not going to chase me away from what I enjoy doing. And I really, really need to be there for the students and for all students, if this is the way they're going to behave. I hit a standstill and I've never been like that. I've never been, um, uh, I've never found myself not knowing what the next three years was gonna look like. I always had a plan. It's, it's racial battle fatigue that we're talking about. We're exhausted because you're not just doing the work. We're trying to dismantle a system while we're doing the work. And um, 
it wasn't created by one person. And that's why allyship is so important. And this is why I beg um, for the experience to have an administrative partner that isn't exhausting me at the end of the day, explaining how things fall on different bodies of students. And that doesn't have to necessarily necessarily be like a white administrative partner. It's just somebody who gets it because listen, like we're tired. We're really, really tired. And sometimes I'm ashamed to say the thought of, do I speak up right now? Do I have the energy to address this? Comes through my mind. I can't, I can't afford to, to debate that. Students can't afford me to debate that. I need to speak up. I need to say something. Um, but it's exhausting. And sometimes I just want to be Allison. Sometimes I want to be, you know, the math nut that people are excited to share, you know, the strategies their class is exploring. Sometimes I want to be that person. This, and as a literacy coach, I was able to do that a lot more. This view, um, this, this, you know, this administrative view where you're looking at the impact on the community and you see the benefits of when a teacher extends themselves beyond what they're used to, to embrace um, different views and to open up their teaching you see the impact and how that um, shifts a student's trajectory. It's amazing, but it's exhausting. So we need need help doing it. And we need those those spaces like mentoring, right? And it's not like the everyday um, partner that that gets it. right? You don't always want to be that person that has to say, uh, you know, that's appropriation. We can't do that. That whole staff dance that you guys just figured out and want to do, like we're not doing that. It's bad taste. You don't always want to be that person. That kind of a makeover needs to be um, not on the shoulders of, of just a few people. So now that you've shared those experiences, what can we do to move forward? How do we disrupt some of those experiences that you've described? Tamika, perhaps we can start with you. Um, what I did that I think needed to get done was I asked my superintendent to, to come to a session and address the staff first. So here they are. They're seeing a white male talking about anti-Black racism. They're going to sit up straight and they're going to listen. So I think with me doing that, that made a, a great difference. So he spoke um, about it being human rights. He spoke about equity or equity move. He spoke about it's not going anywhere and this job is going to get done. So it wasn't coming from the black woman. It was coming from somebody that mm. looks like them, sounds like them. And I think they got it. So it would have been nice if more superintendent would probably stand up for us, but stand up for us, they have to believe in us, right? And I think with this superintendent, he, he understood. He, when, when he heard me talk, he heard the hurt. He, I think he really got it. That spoke volume because I've seen the difference within the staff right now. Well, I should say most of them. And then after he was done, 
I had a conversation and I, you know, I just had a, a conversation and let them know how I felt when they were saying certain things. Of course, that um, was a hard conversation for them to hear. Um, and then I heard a lot of people were crying and that's okay. You probably needed to cry because your behavior is ugly. And if you're going to bring it here, you're not going to be welcomed in this building. And, and that spoke volumes. So I think that really sent a loud message, not only to the administrators, but to all the staff within the building. And that was necessary, I found. Thank you. Allison, same question. Uh, I think, um, like I've already uh, suggested, the need for more partnerships uh, with, you know, like, uh, not like, my, maybe like-minded and people that share similar experiences so that you're not like these floating oases um, navigating the same things separately. Um, I also feel like you got to think about how you're setting uh, leaders up for success. So pairing, you know, be, be mindful that a vice principal doesn't carry the same weight within a building and then ask them to to be the mouthpiece for some of these things. It doesn't work. And when you're asked to call out um, or to, you know, convert your partner's thinking and that that kind of um, change is on you, that that is that's putting somebody in an awkward position, somebody who's going to, you know, particularly, you know, write my appraisal is somebody that I'm making feel uncomfortable about how he speaks to some families and not to other families and how he connects with some and not others, right? That's, that's putting people in a very awkward position and that, that just makes, um, it doesn't set you up for success, right? All of these uh, pieces that um, I took way too long to get on that short list. And that's, that's because I was tired and that's because eventually the system wears you down and makes you feel like you can't do it and you're a fraud. Um, so listening to, I think, people that are navigating barriers that sometimes are thrown in their way and really pulling them apart and examining why um, people have issues with them, you're going to come to the root of it. And the root of it often is you're disrupting something that people don't like. You're asking people to change and to move away from what they're used to. And there's no comfort in that. Um, I wanna say as well, and I think that part of this podcast is trying to do it, but we have to get more comfortable with naming the microaggressions, right? We have to get more comfortable with saying, when you make those references, uh, that are, you know, exclusive to a certain culture, you're creating otherness. When you choose to start a meeting with a certain type of music, you're creating a, a space that is, is not for a lot of people. So being mindful of, of all of those things and starting to name them. And I think we're so worried about calling people out and making people feel purposefully racist. I don't think there's a point to it. You either are or you aren't, and the impact is there. Um, people aren't able to see that they're they're being that way if you can't if you can't name it and if we can't get beyond that fragility. And I'm I'm I think Tamika, I think I've heard you say this. I'm just I can't make it palatable for you. It is what it is. 
this is what's happening. And if we look at the, the success rate um, with, our, with our different groups of students, it's not a lie, right? Thank you so much. And um, Arlene, anything that you wanted to add in terms of how we move forward, how we disrupt? The one I wanted to, to comment on again, to make sure when you said, we can't, we can't be the ones doing all the work, right? We do need, and I think it, as you mentioned in your example of when someone else, you know, you have the white male, like, you know, in the, in the position of leadership, be able to speak on behalf and be that ally or co-conspirator or so forth, to be able to speak, it has a different weight. And I think that's what we need more of. We need more of, the, of, the, of um, those voices and not just at leadership level, but, but also um, getting down to the ground level because I think we have a lot of, when we talk about the policies and we talk about a lot of the work, it's usually at a high level. It doesn't get down to the people on the ground enough. And I see that more so within, say, the education center because a lot of training goes out to the schools, but there's a lot of decisions that are made at the, at the, you know, at the education building. And a lot of those people aren't trained on all this. They don't necessarily know, especially the people that have, you know, interactions with directly with teachers or directly with staff and so forth like that. So to make those changes, it has to get down to the ground level and have other voices speak as well, from senior leadership to managers to team leads and, and everyone in between. So, like, again, we can't do all the work. And, and again, it, it, it ends up being, I think, looked at differently when we are the ones speaking it. It's like, okay, here we go again. Or it, it, it's not the same. I don't think they connect it the same way. So we do need those other voices, right? We need to be able to kind of spread the wealth of knowledge um and oh you know the other piece i was going to say is really um and i Allison, i think you touched on this is really calling it out like we we are so we get so worried about how people are going to feel you know and you don't want to call out behaviors and even when we have now the respectful workplace um policy and things like that you know you're hesitant to call people out and when you don't feel respected or you don't feel comfortable in work and we should all feel comfortable well that's why those policies are there but it's those hard conversations to say you know what your behaviors make me feel uncomfortable like i shouldn't be able to come in every day and you know be nervous of conversations or what's going to happen so it's great again like i said in the beginning it's great to have these policies but to get them into action is going to be hard conversations mm -hmm. we need support like the, the whole system, you know, from senior leadership to everywhere else, we need that support to be able for employees to have those conversations and feel okay saying, you know what, I'm not okay and this is what's happening. So there's going to be, I think it opens up a lot of conversations to have and we just have to be prepared for that because it is going to open those doors. If if an employee comes to me and this has happened, a staff member said, like, I can't go into the staff room. It's not a safe place for me. These are the kinds of jokes that I have to either listen to or suffer through, listen to the exhaustion. And then you gotta, you gotta acknowledge it. And you gotta build, I think, um, your employees up to say, listen, I'm gonna say something if you don't feel right, because that can't happen in our workplace. Um, similarly, when I go and to a supervisor and I'm told, you know, there's a hundred francs out in the system, you have to kind of keep having those narratives. That's that's not the reaction I want. 
I want, there's a hundred francs out in the system and you're not alone in this conversation and it's not okay. And we'll change that. Don't shrug your shoulders and tell me there's a hundred, hundred francs out there that I have to figure out how to change one by one myself. That's not the, the, the message that I should get. Well, that's the way it is, is, is kind of what I heard. I think we need to really acknowledge that someone's feeling exhausted and that you are going to be in regular conversation with them to support them through the next few bits. And you're going to call that person in and say, this is how you're making your partner feel. These things aren't tolerated. Um, and then the other piece is I hear this a lot with educators, um, administrators too, saying, you know, you have to represent your population. And I want to challenge that. You don't just have to represent your population. In fact, those communities up north, we need to think about, or homo homogenous communities even, how do we get those educators to represent a global reality? We're not just doing the work when the neighborhood changes. We're doing the work because the world has changed. And we're doing the, the work because those interactions aren't isolated to that school community. And when an administrator shows up to be supply administrator, the school doesn't think you're the lunchroom supervisor. Not that there's anything wrong with that. God bless those lunchroom supervisors. Couldn't get through my day without them. They're amazing people that I don't know how they walk into the situations they do on a regular basis. But those homogenous communities need diversity in their curriculum and um, in their staffing as much as the diverse community down south. In fact, more so, because that's where those dangerous thoughts in the system gains uh, mobility and strength and, and uh, momentum to, to perpetuate the system that that is, right? Well, thank you so much. I know we're, we're out of time. We didn't get to our final question, but I think we touched on it briefly through the conversations around what people could do uh, to be better allies and accomplices. And I know uh, Tamika shared about how just having a superintendent stand up for her and for the work and for um, you know, promoting human rights and anti-racism was, was such a help. Um, is there anything else that any, any one of you would like to add in terms of uh, being a better ally or accomplice or any final words before we close off? I, I guess uh, just I have managed to continue on my path where I, I had mentioned that I was a little paralyzed before because there have been um, new faces, new voices uh, within, um, you know, the senior team. Um, and I have had conversations that have helped me uh, understand that the intention is to move uh, forward in our thinking as a board. Um, and I am also hopeful in the fact that there are there are structures in place to not have that work rest on um, the shoulders of a few people. Yeah. It would be nice, and it's just a thought, it would be nice to have mentors that look like us um, because I'm sure I'm being mentored, but I don't know if it's when, when I make a mistake or that's when I'm hearing it. But it would be nice to have somebody um, for me that, and I know it's hard if you're not in the same building, but it'd be nice to have that person um, that looks like me that I could have that conversation with. This is what I'm experiencing. You know, can you help me? 
how do I navigate around that instead of me running into a wall and then, okay, probably you should have done it this way, right? So that's, that's the only, that's the last thing I think that we're lacking in this board right now as mentors. We, we need people that looks like us. I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to be crying or something. Then somebody say, you know what? Let this person talk to you. This person understands. But if we have similar voices, I think it would be a better connection and an easier transition. One thing I could say is I have seen change since I've been here. I have seen changes of people coming in and it is getting more diverse, which is great to see compared to when I started. It wasn't that long ago that I started. So I'm happy to see some of those changes occurring, but still, there's still a long way to go just to be, again, comfortable and be able to do your work. And the other change that does need to happen, you know, I've seen it at the teacher level. I've seen, you know, um, more principles of diversity and principles, which is great and at leadership level. Again, at the management level, that's where some work really needs to be done. It hasn't happened there yet which then influences the other teams um, and the impact that they make to the system as well. So that's an area that needs to focus. And then it comes to the support because again, seeing people come in and, and leave because they don't feel supported or they don't feel um, like, you know, going through the fight or, or putting up with things. So um, I agree either mentorship or some type of group where you can connect and not feel alone. Um, and be able to, you know, be yourself, talk strategy, whatever it needs to be, but to be comfortable while you're working here. So um, just kind of the last things that we would need to, to continue on. Well, thank you so much to Allison, Arlene, and Tamika. I feel like we could talk for another couple of hours, but really do appreciate you sharing your experiences and insights with us. That couldn't have been easy for you, and we truly appreciate you opening yourselves up so that we could hear about your experiences and so that we can learn and do better. And just to sort of close off, you know, I think it's it's really about our humanity, recognizing the humanity of others, treating others with dignity and respect, and recognizing that this is a shared responsibility, that this is all of our work. It isn't just the work of the three of you or people that are um, living in the bodies of people are, are, are living in racialized bodies. It's all of our work. Um, and thank you all for listening and learning alongside us today. Thank you and have a good night.